Hi, welcome to the Reviewer 2 Does Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Colleen Gollier, and we're talking about aerosols and aerosol distribution as part of the Scopex experiment. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, so uh, do you want to give us uh, start off by giving us your uh, affiliation and just a bit of background so people understand where you're, whether you're a, uh, a, an emeritus professor or a, a freshly minted PhD student. Yeah, uh, so I am a fifth year PhD candidate at Harvard University, um, working with David Keith. Um, this particular paper project took up the first four years of that PhD, so it's been a while, but I wouldn't say I completely know what I'm doing. If Is we knew right? what we were doing, it wouldn't be called research. So <laughs> the, uh, you spent four years writing one paper. Is that right? Yeah, it took a lot longer than we both expected, me and David. Okay. It best be good at the end of that. But guess re- if it gets rejected at the end of that, you'll be a bit cross, won't you? Yes. Um, so um, do you want to give us the title or prospective title? So at the moment, the paper, the, the paper's where? Is it, is it finished in review or published or what? So it's available online. It's published in JGR Atmospheres. Um, so it should be available online, open access. Um, the, the title was aerosol dynamics in the near field of the Scopex stratospheric. I don't remember the title of my paper is what's happening. So you spent four years on it. Can't even remember the title. That's good, isn't it? <laughs> but it's got it. And I was like, well, doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> who cares about the title? <laughs> so, um, so this is actually out and produced and it's gone out and it's gone through peer review and everything then. Yeah. Yes, it's been peer-reviewed, okay. gone through the comment process. Okay. Um, so, because uh, sometimes things come out, like uh, if you publish in AC, uh, Atmospheric Chemistry and Physics, ACPD, yeah, ACPD, that's it, then the, the peer review publish pub, continues after publication. I don't know whether the JGR Atmospheres is like that. I think that's just a static peer review process, isn't it? So you go through peer review and then, and then it's finished and you go out into publication and that's that. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it's it's just kind of done now, luckily. Okay. So um, uh, what you want now? What's the what's the next project? Or are you just like lying on a sun lounger and recovering <laughs> from the last four years? I wish. Uh, um, I am moving on to kind of some work using CESM and superparameter. No acronyms on this show. That's community okay. system model, right? Exactly. Community system model and then a superparameterized version of that model and um what does that even mean i've got no idea what you're talking about so it means like so community earth system model let's just let's just consider the atmosphere um when you have kind of these models that are doing so many processes you you parameterize some of them so you basically say well i'm not going to just like do the physics out for this process instead i'm going to come up with an equation that describes that process to, to simplify. So you just like create a sort of side model that does a approximation and then you bung the result of that into the main model, right? Exactly. So you wouldn't have to calculate something expensive like chemistry climate. You might sort of force the chemistry, right? Take it from another model or whatever, right? Exactly. And so what I'm interested in looking at is how we're kind of doing that with convection um, and what, what that means for our understanding of geoengineering in these models. So my understanding of it, convections are being a, is a bit of a problem for models because the convection scales that you care about are pretty small scale. 
whereas the grid cells in the models are pretty big. So there's loads of sub-grid um, convection processes that just generally mess up the physics in the model. You can't see them because the resolution's not good enough in the model. And it's a real struggle to then work out what's going on in these little grid cells um, sort of inside them and, and, and looking at in the guts of each grid cell and see what's going on. Is that, is that basically the, the issue that you're trying to deal with? Exactly. And so this, okay. this super parameterized thing that I speak of is basically instead of having big grid cells, I make much smaller grid cells and you kind of get around that problem. Yeah. So you make, so you make little grid cells in like a little model and then you put the results of your little model into your big model to make your big model work better. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So you're um, part of the Scopex team. Now, most people think of Scopex as a vaguely controversial balloon uh, that people keep trying to launch and then getting into various degrees of trouble and not launching. Um, so it, it, is there a whole bunch of other stuff around Scopex that, that, that's not directly to do with any kind of balloonacy at all? Yeah, I would say I'm kind of this, this team, part of the team, but kind of this like kind of periphery of the team. So there's, there's a mechanical engineering team that's obviously working on the physical balloon platform. Yeah. Um, and then there's people like me, I was doing modeling work, um, trying to understand like, originally it was looking at like trying to figure out what propellers you want to use based on models and then understanding, oh, well, if we use these propellers, how can we put material into that wake? Um, so basically you've got this thing that looks like a sort of steampunk airship, right? So it's got a long uh, a balloon and then hanging under the balloon, you've got uh, a like a not a basket but a kind of instrument um assembly and then it's got a couple of propellers on the outside of it like a proper zeppelin type airship thing right um and the idea is that you squirt whatever kind of geoengineering um material you want and but you squirt them into the propeller weight which sort of mixes them around like an egg beater and and squirts them behind the balloon basically by sort of shoving the air around right so <clears throat> is is what you're doing because there's, there's, two, there's two ways that your work could be informing that. So either you're looking at how the sort of the atmosphere around the balloon works because no one's bothered working it out previously because we don't really care about the stratosphere because, you know, not as many people work on it as the troposphere, so it's not actually that well understood compared to the lower atmosphere, right? That's my understanding anyway. Um, or alternatively, what, you could, you're, what you're doing could be very, very specific to, you know, the, the, the actual engineering system that you're putting in the sky and you're really just working out stuff that happens around it which is much more in common with you know what a formula one car designer would do or a you know a, a fighter aircraft designer would do so which is what you're doing sort of basic atmospheric physics or is it much more sort of applied engineering you're doing here i that's a good question i think in some ways it's a combination um i will say so the way that we represented Scopex. The way, the way that this has specificity to Scopex is we took a um, fluid dynamics model and we said, okay, let's just put two elements into our domain that are the same characteristics as the propellers of Scopex. And let's kind of, we ignored a lot of things and we have a pretty laminar background flow. So basically it's, it's like a really simplified version of Scopex, which means I'm not like it certainly is representative of parts of Scopex, but it might not capture the full, complete 
you know, fluid dynamics of flow around the, the Okay, platform. so you're, you're basically making a very simple flow model that focuses on the propeller and you're, you're ignoring things like what shape is the balloon and what shape is the instrument basket. You're just looking at the flow dynamics around the propeller. Is that right? That is correct. And the balloon, we basically made this assumption. We were like, well, we're, we're, we're hanging on a tether below the balloon. And so we calculated first, you know, what is the wake around the balloon going to look like? And then we assumed that our tether was significantly longer than that kind of wake expansion so that we yeah. never have interaction. So we, we've, we've provided reasons for ourselves to ignore it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you basically make a simple dynamics model. So you've got this propeller that's sort of fundamentally just stirring around in space as if it's held in place by God and spun around <laughs> by God. And you're looking at the air swirling around it, right? Exactly. You're, you're, you're giggling as I'm telling you that, right? Um, yeah, okay. So, <laughs> so, the, so the, the squirty stuff that comes out, it comes out in the core of the propeller, right? Is that correct? So we you squirt? That was that was one of the major motivations for the for the study because we didn't know if we should. Um, I guess we the the design team was like, well, we could either put it um, in an ejection location in between both propellers. Um, or so the propellers are side by side, right? So in theory, you could squirt the material out in the kind of still air between the two propellers. And as the balloon moves through the air, you'd have like a passive diffusion. And then the weight of the propellers, when it hit that region of still air, it would get a bit stirred up. But it's a much stiller model, right? That's one way of doing it. Right. And I think the idea was like you could put like some sort of extender and have the the nozzle injection site kind of directly put kind of maybe a meter in front of your um platform so that it's you know more placed into the actual turbulent air versus the still air that's kind of existing between or you could put your you could have you could split it up and have two injection sites um in the kind of hub of each propeller themselves okay so you you've got so three choices you're basically describing so one is you inject the material in the steel air in the gap between the two propellers and then as the balloon moves away then the weight will eventually hit that air and stir it up right the first the, the, the second one is to squirt the material um into the intake of the propeller um and then the third one is to put it on the output of the propeller so that you're injecting into very turbulent air so obviously the disadvantage of the second one is the material actually hits the propeller so if it's a particular matter it will potentially wear the propeller or you'll get build up and things like that so did you look at squirting it onto the propeller or into the propeller or did you only ever look at squirting it on the output of the propeller so we only really looked at the output of the propeller so we had two specific cases which we called scenario one <clears throat> excuse me and scenario two um, scenario one being in between the two propellers, um, kind of slightly in front of where the kind of level zone, like you have your two propellers and slightly in front of it was our injection site one. Um, so we never have an instance where we expect the, like the propellers are far enough apart from each other that we don't inject and have a scenario where we think the propeller is literally going to kind of interact or hit the particles. right where the nozzle is injecting if that makes sense yeah okay so you're basically injecting it into the messy air behind the propeller so it's all kind of like having a hairdryer basically that you've got the air in uh that's coming out of the hairdryer and then the air is sort of flapping around if you kind of put streamers in your hairdryer right by the hairdryer's nozzle they're pretty straight but then a bit further away 
they'd flap around all over the place as the turbulence hits the streamers, right? Exactly. And exactly. I remember that from like the occasional sort of hungover labs at engineering college when I sort of learned the odd little thing about engineering. Um, but probably best illustration of this, as I recall, if you kind of imagine a sort of classic drawing of cigarette smoke. So as the cigarette smoke rises from the cigarette, it's often drawn as being a straight line. And then it goes into this kind of messy sort of mushroom cloud a bit further up, right? That's that transition between laminar and turbulent flow. So the, 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 the propellers are a bit more complicated than that because they're not just convective like a cigarette. So they're actually chopping the air up like an egg beater. So have you got turbulent air immediately behind the propellers on this experiment? Yes. Or Okay, so the whole thing, you're in turbulent flow the moment the, turbulent, the propeller blade hits. The whole thing is messy turbulent flow, right? So you get quite good mixing. Um you have some backflow too. So like you have like you have your little propeller location, you have, you know, pretty high velocity, you have your highest velocity, like probably about two meters out from the propeller. Um, and then also behind your propeller, you have kind of this like swirling like mess as well. So yeah. if you were to put, if you were to put material kind of almost too far back, you'd actually get it sucked backwards and back forwards, um, which I don't know, that could be fine. There's yeah. you know, you could still so what you're saying back. basically is that you've got bit that immediately downstream of the propeller you've got some uh you th that that's a, a less turbulent regime right so if you kind of think of the the cigarette then just just um above the cigarette it's quite laminar flow it's quite the, air, the airflow is quite straight but when that fast air hits the slow air that's surrounding it then it, it goes much more chaotic right yeah and i would say one way to put this is the like right in front of the propeller, your like your velocity, your downstream velocity is very large compared to your velocity in either of your other two, three, like two or three dimensions. So your Y and Z dimension um, and your kind of eddy, um, turbulent eddy diffusivity term um, is decently low and that gets larger kind of further away. Uh, okay, so the, basically the, the further away from the propeller you get, the more turbulence there is, the more mixing there is, the more random the air movements are, right? Yes. And you kind of see in, in these plots that you get. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think your description of the cigarette is is pretty spot on. Um, yeah, that's how I sort of learned it at university is like kind of rationalized that. So um, so you're look, you're basically you're looking at the dynamics of this. Now, the, the Scopex experiments, is it fair to say that they haven't actually decided what they're squirting out the back of their expensive balloon thing because yeah. one minute it's calcium carbonate and the next minute it's sulfuric acid and no one seems to know yeah i don't know either and i'm not sure like i guess i'm i'm distant enough from the actual <laughs> from the actual field team that i don't have any kind of idea of what is happening but I, I think part of that's because the first flight is just an engineering flight to like prove that this thing will actually <laughs> fly and is actually maneuverable <laughs> yeah because I, I have no idea i'm very intrigued to see how that how it's it quite bold that you're telling everyone that you're going to do this first engineering flight because when it ends up as a pile of expensive bits on the ground having fallen 25 kilometers out of the sky you'll have a lot of explaining to do whereas if you did it on the quiet and tell anybody about it until you had done it then you'd be much better off because no one would know that you've messed it up five times and they wouldn't be calling you a bunch of idiots but we'll see how that we'll see how that goes. Um, no, I think 
having this oversight committee, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's very interesting. I feel a little bit outside of it, but yeah, to have the oversight committee in some ways, I'm like, this is just kind of like, it feels strange to have an oversight committee for something that will probably, I mean, it, it's an engineering flight, right? Like we're going to anticipate having all these failures and that's the point. Um, but I know that that's like important. It's important for the governance of geoengineering, but it's just interesting to think about. Um, <laughs> so, the, so they're not going to squirt anything on this, this initial flight, are they? How long is it going to be before they actually squirt something out of the back of this balloon? thing i have no idea and i think it also depends again the oversight committee does like a number of different types of reviews so i think you know i think they could still like it could still be vetoed i think is a is a key point here too okay. you lot are making quite a fuss about this project i mean like there's a lot of oversight going on and not a lot of engineering it's quite remarkable how much of a talking shop scopex has become like this, this experiment has been in planning for like five, six years, something like that. And you haven't actually flown anything yet. Yeah, I, I think the engineering has been kind of, it's like you put the pedal to the metal for a while and then you had to take your foot off the pedal to figure out kind of some of this oversight and governance. And then I would say right now, there are definitely like people in the shop all the time where their full-time gig right now is putting this together. But um, okay, I think it's, um, it's been pretty terrible. So if they do they sort of talk to you and on a practical level engage in what you do or are they just lock you in a cupboard and they'll look at your results when they come out or how does it work? Yeah, so I was talking to the design team. So there's I, I was talking to two main mechanical engineers who were working with us about um, kind of when they were designing or thinking about what propellers to buy, they wanted to plan ahead to understand, well, okay, will these propellers do what we need them to do, which was to create a turbulent uh, enough environment to, to create a wide enough plume to fly through. Um, and then which also- Which is weird, because that's like the opposite of what you want a propeller to do normally, isn't it? Because any energy that goes into creating turbulent flow doesn't go into creating, pushing the car forward, right? Right, well, I mean, it has to do both. Like these propellers are gonna both have to drive Scopex. So, and we, we basically wanna be able to kind of go up there and the way I imagine it is you kind of want to park. I mean, you're going to be moving with the mean flow, but you want to park this balloon and turn on your propellers and create this kind of perturbed section of air. Yeah. And then inject a material. Um, but the other question was they were they were looking at, well, we don't want to you buy can't, you can't do that. You can't just like stop there and then Scopex, the, the hardware doesn't have the capacity to just stir up the air without moving. The you're propellers be, will move the craft forward, right? You're gonna be moving, right. Um, okay, but you could have designed it. So you've just got like a massive egg beater, and then you've got some thrust propellers, and you use them for two completely different purposes. Like, why did you decide to mix your thrust propellers with your with your egg beater? Why didn't you just have a separate egg beater if you wanted to be? That's a good question. You... I don't know. I I think this was done perhaps for weight requirements, but I really have no idea. This part of the design, I was completely hmm. kind of. So it was just given to you, and you're like we've done this design and you've got to do all the computational fluid dynamics around it. You didn't actually get to say, well, how about we don't use that design? Cause it's could do it differently. You never, they never asked you. No. And also I, <laughs> I have no expertise in that. So, okay. <laughs> you know, but, but, <laughs> I'm not but it's not clear that. That, that they did either, because like, I'm trying to understand why they chose to have like a turbulent, like to rely on the propellers to do the turbulent mixing rather than having a special 
turbulent mixer of some kind, whatever that was. I mean, that seems to be a, a, you know, a distinct choice. It could have done it the other way around and had two separate devices. And I'm just trying to understand whether you think that it would have been better or worse to have had a separate mixer as opposed to relying on the thrust propellers to do the turbulent mixing. Well, I guess I would have to say that from our paper, it seems like they probably do a good enough job. So okay. why have two why why have right, two so things you, adding complexity? Okay, so so your your the principal finding of your paper is that your your thrust propellers will work well enough as an egg beater to mix up whatever it is you stuff out the back of your fancy balloon system um, so that it will mix well enough into the ambient air and then you'll then get just diffusive spreading thereafter, right? So you yes. don't end up with you don't end up with like a little streak of aerosol precursor that just stays together in a little blob, right? It's quite exactly, exactly, and that was, that was a concern. If you were to just spray something into um, the stratosphere without anything else, and it's you're kind of in a laminar flow regime, unless you have gravity wave breaking, which we we're trying to avoid, you would expect just well, to oh, have. Like oh, 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 hold on, that was interesting there. So gravity wave breaking is basically when you've got different bits of the atmosphere that act like the kind of ocean and atmosphere. So you have waves like, so you get different, you get density separation and you get a wave that comes through uh, like a gravity wave. So you get displacement up and down like you would on the surface of the water if someone, you know, jumped off a rock and fell into the water. Um, uh, and, and those gravity waves, waves break when you get sort of turbulent mixing, when those gravity waves um, interact or hit an obstacle. Is that, is that, do I understand that process as well? Yeah, I think that's a good description, and that's how I tend to think about waves too, because it's kind of. So why don't you want gravity wave breaking? I always thought that gravity wave breaking would help you. Because they are like I think yes, theoretically, if you could perfectly predict, you know, a gravity wave occurring and model that and be able to exactly preempt it, I think it could be useful. But I think the fact that surf a gravity wave predictable, right? Like. I, you know, that would just kind of add add complexity to the game that will be finding okay. the plume. So the, the idea of Scopex, then, my understanding is you're, 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 you're ejecting a material which is actually aerosols rather than ejecting material which will turn into aerosols. Is that correct? Um, yes. So kind of, I, I guess it's still technically an aerosol precursor was the idea that you could emit H2O4 vapor um but that essentially immediately turns into yeah aerosol. yeah it's not like a slow chemical reaction that happens over months like it would be if it was sulfur dioxide or anything like that right just growing okay. sulfuric acid and it condenses and you are you using like a little solar powered heater to to make that is that the idea or what this has not yet been designed so there are i guess the That's description quite late like you're flying well, in june and you haven't but we're not spraying anything. You're not spraying I mean, anything, June, right? Like the team just wants to fly an engineering flight. So I think that this is kind of, you know. Well, to be fair, that's only half an engineering flight because the main thing that you're going up there to do, you can't do. So, um, okay. So when is Scopex actually going to have its um, its ejection um, uh, apparatus designed and possibly even assembled? What's the sort of time scale for that? I have... <laughs> I, I have no idea. So okay. I does anyone have an idea? Or is it is it just like later? I think. I mean, I think I'm sure David has some sort of idea. I will say there's a team. Um, oh, they're 
the um, gentlemen that are working out of California, Armand Nukerman and another. Yeah, they do the Marine Cloud uh, Brightening one. Uh, and isn't that Washington State that they, they are in, not California? I don't know that they're associated. I don't know. I have actually, I can't speak to their affiliation or kind of who they're working with, but I know that they have been working on a um, nozzle injection system. Yeah, they so have. Publishing. I think they're they're basically like in preparation to publish a paper um, on a specific method. Yeah, so that, yeah. That, I mean, that's really interesting. The the, the chart challenges to get monodispersed uh, droplets out of a nozzle. It's not. It's, they're basically making a massive inkjet for printing clouds. Right. It's kind of cool, but uh, pretty cool. Yeah. And yeah, it is very cool. It hadn't been. I guess I didn't know that this. I, coming in as a grad student, I remember my first project was actually looking at nozzle designs, and I obviously. Yeah. And no expertise. Um, so, so what is your grad, what's your undergraduate degree then? Chemical engineering. I did uh, okay. membrane. <laughs> useless to me now. But it, it's not well. I mean, I've never met anybody who's done a mechanical engineering degree. He thought mechanical engineering degrees are any use. Um, so I don't. I wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me greatly if chemical engineers had similar skepticism about their field of study. To be honest. Um, so uh, and and what was your? Did you do a master's on top? Or did you? Or what? And was that in chemical? No, nope. nope. you just I, went straight from undergrad to PhD. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. But you've been stuck in PhD land for five years now, which is like. Yeah, I guess that's pretty. I think the average is about six and a half years for our department. But I guess it's just because I, you know, you take all the classes. You essentially get a master's on route to your PhD. Okay, right. It's like combined. Yeah, like my undergrad was a combined bachelor's and master's, so I didn't, I didn't bother with a bachelor's degree. I just got four year master, so comparable type thing um anyway back to the plot so um you you so your 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 principal thing is to work out the sort of stirriness of the air behind the propeller um at, at, uh, from this device which is yet to be built or even decided on what material is going to come out of it so your main thing was to do a sort of wake computational fluid dynamics this aerosol distribution and then you hand it over to an intermediate model as far as i understand which sebastian Easton is or Eastman, I can't remember, is working on it, doesn't he? He has a transition regime from um, wake model to the grid cell model. Is that correct? Yeah, so he's working on um, like a plume and grid model. I think, honestly, I'm not sure, like my results are out to three kilometers where my grid cells are. Um, two kilometers backwards or two kilometers spread out? So three kilometers, like I guess downstream from the fan element in this okay. grid. So the balloon sort of goes through this parcel of air, stirs it up, squirts the material into it, and then you're um, and you're looking at three kilometers behind the balloon as it travels. Okay, right. Yes. Fine. And so um, his his model was designed for kind of I think understanding more from a like a jet injection and so i actually don't know like i don't know what the the smallest scale he's operating on or or that, yeah. that stuff. so i might actually be like you might have to carry my model out further to get something that can plug into the to the his model but but yeah they're working on that that plume and grid model which is super cool and <laughs> very neat and putting it okay. in geos do a bunch of chemistry as well which is pretty awesome yeah okay so um you're I, you know, forgive my uh, ignorance of an outsider, but 
but that doesn't sound like a full four years of work doing a model of basically what amounts to a cone of increasing turbulence. How, how does that equate to four years work? What's the complexity in that study? Well, let me, let me build myself some leeway. I spent a year <laughs> designing nozzles. So that was one year. First year was kind of, you don't do anything. I also took all my classes and got the master's. So, you know, give myself a little fluff here. And then okay. <laughs> I think, I mean, I think, uh, <laughs> I think like a typical grad student, I did a lot of things wrong and I, I probably wasted a lot of time, but I learned a lot. So I think the complexity and what, what took a lot of time was basically you have this fluid dynamics field that you output. And so from that, we extracted the three dimensions of velocity and um, a term that described turbulence. And then we extracted that and we were like, okay, this doesn't tell us anything about particle anything. Cause in this, this is literally just a fluid dynamics model. Um, and so what I ended up spending most of my time doing was saying, okay, sure. Now I wanna inject particles into that field we've extracted. And I want to be able to understand how those particles, um, specifically if you're spraying H2SO4, it's a vapor, so we need to condense those particles. We need to allow them to nucleate into um, aerosols. Then you want to also say, okay, well, once I have aerosols in the system, I can condense onto the surface of those aerosols, and then also I can coagulate between particles. Um, okay, so, so you're actually looking at a series of complex, because the way, the, the way I'd imagined it is that you would just you just had a, it's essentially like a, I think you might call it a Lagrangian analysis, where you're just taking a series of points um, uh, in the field. You're assuming that the aerosols are perfectly suspended and you just track the dilution. But what you're saying is you're actually looking at a number of sub-processes, sort of evaporation, condensation, um, nucleation, all of that kind of stuff. You're, you're considering all of those levels in it. Okay. Exactly. We have an Eulerian right. frame. So we're, we're iterating in time and are kind of, our spatial grid is staying constant and we're looking at the flow through each of our points in a Eulerian framework, um, which is very different from what Seb and Hongler are doing. They're, they're doing what you described, the Lagrangian model, where you kind of follow this distribution of particles. So, so if you could, if you could describe the difference between a Eulerian framework and a Lagrangian framework for people, including me, who don't understand the difference properly between those two things. I think the best way I remember it, and it's very simple and hopefully helps you, but I don't know. Um, Eulerian framework, you're looking at a grid um, and that grid is just fixed in space and you kind of care more about what's happening at each of your spatial points. Um, and so things move in and out of your grid boxes. That's an Eulerian framework. Lagrangian framework, you're kind of, you're following your particles. Um, so you're, you're not really looking so much at a gridded space. You're looking at the distribution of your particles in time and the probability of a particle being in a certain place at a certain time. Um, okay. The Lagrangian model, a key component of the Lagrangian model is because of the assumptions made, you generally cannot perform, I mean, I'm sure you can in some sort of semi-Lagrangian framework, but generally you don't perform chemistry because your particles are like, um, are independent of each other. So you can't say, oh, I'm going to iterate one step forward in time yeah. and do chemistry. So, so to think of a, an, appro an approximation uh, between the two. So um, a Eulerian framework might be what the, the model is you kind of pour some bubble bath into your bath and it mixes in. You're not tracking individual bits of bubble bath as they distribute in your bath. But if you put um, like floaty candles in your bath, those individual floaty candles would be like, 
Lagrangian points in that a candle has a fixed location you can track. You can see how those floaty candles float around in the water. Yeah. I think that's a good analogy. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, let's break it down to the basics so even mechanical engineers can understand. Um, so your, your modeling that you've been doing, what was the, the framework that you've done there? Was it a Lagrangian analysis, did you say? So it's Eulerian. So it, your, it didn't yours have is it. Eulerian, right? Completely Eulerian. So basically, I, <laughs> it's like if you were to fill a tub and then drain it, I would be tracking how much water is in the tub um, with time. Like I don't care yep. where any individual piece of anything is in the tub. Okay. Um, so you, you're looking at dilution. You've you've got the equivalent of like a kind of chemistry climate model in the plume, right? Yes, just way less complicated, and I okay. have a lot yeah, of yeah, yeah. But you're you're, com you're, com you're computing the the you're breaking up your your plume into a number of different cells, um, and then you're 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 looking at the chemical reactions in each cell as well as tracking the points and the flow so it's a lot more complicated than just looking at the weight behind a formula one car or something like that it's more like looking at a process inside a jet engine is a probably a better comparison right kind of i mean i think what you could say for like the for the formula one race car like you can imagine the flow of air around that race car now you want to know how the exhaust out the back is acting in that flow behind the race car is yeah. kind of a good but, but the reason I put, make that point is because the, the, the exhaust in a race car, that it's pretty inert when it leaves the race car, right? I mean, okay, you, over time, you're going to get some photochemical effects and smog formation, but pretty much all the chemistry has already happened. But what you're saying is the complexity in your model comes from the fact that you're actually doing active chemistry in the plume, which is why I said something that, like it's more like the flame can of a jet engine because you're computing not only the fluid flow, but also the resulting chemistry, which I completely didn't realize until I started this interview, which is kind of useful because that's what we're here for, right? So the, the, the complexity is that you're, it's, it's flow plus chemistry or flow plus chemical processes. That's Flow plus microphysics. I would say I do not compute, and I think this is an important point, I do not compute how, um, like, I guess it was a short enough time when we said, okay, let's ignore um, the interaction with background species. Let's assume yeah. that our concentration overwhelms background species. And let's assume that we don't have any chemical, like specific chemical reactions happening. So, so really yeah. this is just microphysical model, but yeah, that. Okay. That but, it's, but, but, but the point I'm making is it's the condensation and nucleation processes that you're handling. And that's what makes it complex, right? Cause you've got yes. the flow model. Exactly. You've got, you've got the transition between the laminate, the laminar flow and the turbulent flow. And within that, you've got a condensation regime. So you've got to take into account changes in pressure, um, the changes in temperature that come out of the back of this stuff. So um, what? just talk me through the parameters. So this, this the sulfuric acid that comes in pretty hot, doesn't it? So you, you've got hot sulfuric acid, you're vaporizing. Well, so here's what we've assumed. So for the, yes. So theoretically, you would have to heat to vaporize your H2SO4, um, and then it would have to condense. For the assumptions in the study, so basically the smallest grid box I worked with, and this was also kind of part of the process, deciding you know how to break up our domain. The smallest grid box I used was 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters, and because imagine That's pretty you're not big. Well, I mean, your nozzle was going to be, you know, exactly. 100 times smaller than that, right? Exactly. So the, you imagine your nozzle is probably going to be on a millimeter scale, um, maybe slightly bigger. And but so don't you need to transition between those two regimes. I mean, like that's not that's not simple, is it? 
No. So we had to make some assumptions basically saying, okay, we, we chatted with Armand and he was like, okay, we spray out of our test nozzle um, at 10 centimeters away from the nozzle output are um, like, we've cooled down. So we've been able to assume that our ambient temperature is our temperature and whether or not that's a good assumption remains to be seen. Um, and then also- Yeah, but the difference between what Armand's doing, what you're doing is that he's doing it at sea level, right? So it's a lot hotter and, a, you know, a hundred times denser. Correct. So we've assumed though that our general, um, like, like the concentration and kind of the shape of the function that describes our input um, mimics that. But yeah, I think I think a big part of Scopex and like what I would hope to validate, like I basically like I've are, I'm I'm so in my study that I I see all the things that are probably horribly wrong. But that's research, right? So what I'm really interested in with Scopex is yeah, like how wrong was our input function? Um, there needs to be research to understand basically what's happening at you know, that interface between the nozzle injection, like yeah. that one millimeter hole or whatnot, and the 10 centimeters. All models out. are wrong, but some are useful, right? Right. So, so hopefully this is useful, but I'm so, I'm so curious, you know, what we'll find. Um, and I think that's the main area where you see, like you have this really high density, right? Like your highest density that you're going to see in your plume is right at that injection site. And when you have yeah. a high density, like that, you have your nucleation happening um, in this regime at that temperature and pressure, you can assume you're in this barrierless nucleation regime where basically every molecule of H2SO4 is forming its own nucleation site. So you have yeah. this extreme high density, which then causes this really high um, tendency to coagulate. Um, yeah. And so basically a lot of your processes are happening right in that immediate vicinity. Yeah, um, I'm really, I mean, just like to kind of put a comment in really, I mean, like that, what you described to me really concerns me my, my instinct is your wake model sounds quite there's nothing that you've told me about your wake model that gives me the fear but your transition from the nozzle regime to a 10 centimeter regime that's a there's a lot going on there um and i'm really amazed that you that your minimum cell size is 10 centimeters because that regime uh from the you know as the as you get the mixing on the kind of micro scale at the edge of the nozzle and it mixes it this very very low pressure air that's sort of of the order of about one percent of of air pressure at, at the surface um uh you know not a lot of capacity for heat transfer um into that air just because of the mass limitation even though it's colder um that that strikes me is that that that's the bit that i would focus on if i'm trying to find any gross errors in your work right i mean yeah I think that that's an area where, I guess, so from previous literature, like this 10 centimeters was a pretty big jump in resolution that hadn't been seen. But yeah, I think there's room for the next paper to be like, okay, well, Colleen did 10 centimeters, let me do 0.1 millimeters and like, let's- Yeah, yeah, that. but like, I mean, surely the, the, the obvious way to tackle that is to do experiments because I mean like it's really difficult to do experiments on a kilometer scale grid because people don't generally have a lab which is a kilometer long right um I mean obviously <laughs> everything's bigger in America so you probably do but um what about in um you know doing benchtop experiments that you could do in something the size of a shoebox with the nozzle squirting into it um is it not possible to do that in a vacuum chamber and sort of see when you've got realistic temperatures and pressures and materials could you not experimentally val validate your your models to see if that initial sort of 10 centimeter 
scale step whether that's valid or, or nonsense yeah and i think i mean i think we do have a vacuum chamber at harvard but i do think it sounds like armand's group is the one that's pretty much set up to to have expertise in this and so i'm imagining as they publish their outcomes that'll become something that you can take and use because i I guess they work on marine cloud brightening. I don't know what their situation is with lowering their pressure, lowering their temperature, and reperforming yeah. experiments. But I'm sure. I mean, look, there are temperature chambers. There are environmental chambers you can get that will do the pressures quite readily. But doing the pressure and the temperature together is much more complicated because you've got to chill the walls of the the, the heat transfer onto the a gas from the walls is going to be pretty high. So even though the gas will cool down as you evacuate the chamber you're going to have um, a lot of heating of that gas from contact with the surface of the chamber, which is ambient. So you'd have to chill your, um, uh, your, the surface of your chamber with dry ice to get it to the right temperature. And then you're ejecting acid species into it. So the chemistry is going to get messed up pretty quickly. It's, it's, not, it's not a particularly easy set of experiments to do, but, it's, but it doesn't require enormous or hugely expensive equipment. It's just a bit of a fiddle. So um, that's... Um, yeah, that's interesting. I'd like to see how that win. Now, um, the, the other thing that you did, which I wanted to sort of grill you on, and this is perhaps the area of uh, your work that I'm most interested in, is the, the LIDAR, because my, my understanding is that you're, you're flying some LIDARs around um, on, on this, uh, the Scopex experiment, and the LIDARs are basically searching for the plume and trying to analyze the plume. So it, it do I have that? Do I have that basically correct? That's that's what you're trying to do to look at what's happening with these like what's happening with the plume using lidars to to bounce off particles, right? My understanding, yeah, is that the the mission will use lidar to identify like the plume to essentially to see the plume um, so where it went. Yeah, the point is to to basically refine the plume and then fly through it um okay and so the, and are you so are you doing sample return are you actually trying to analyze the plume with mass spec or are you just relying on lidar to find the plume what's the what's the so what's the my understanding is like to physically get ourselves back through the plume the lidar is our primary mechanism but there's going to be a number of instruments on the flight or that that have been planned so to be able to to sample um the idea is like if you sprayed out a plume and then you fly through it um, it's going to evolve with time. So if you sample through the early part of the plume, you see the early development. If you sample through the end of the plume, you see kind of what happens with X amount of time has passed on okay. the- So the idea is that you go through, you, you sort of, it's like a bit like sky writing. So you squirt this trail out, a bit like a contrail behind an airliner, and then you sort of zigzag back through the plume and you can take samples of the material in the plume to see what's happened with the chemistry. And, but you've got to actually find the plume because it's not necessarily immediately and obviously visible, right? It's quite a subtle thing. Is that correct? Exactly. Right? So the purpose of the model was to say, okay, well, given the parameters of a specific photometer or radiometer, I'm not actually sure about the terms there, um, do we expect that with this injection material and this injection rate that we can actually get a, a high enough signal to noise ratio that this would be feasible to detect was really the okay. question. So you shine your, so imagine like it's like a cloud of mosquitoes uh, behind this balloon and you send a laser pulse out and it bounces off one of the mosquitoes and then comes back and you say, oh, I can see a mosquito and it's this far away from the balloon. And then you reconstruct your cloud basically in that particular way yeah and your job is to try and find whether the aerosols are small enough and 
um, dense enough, uh, so the cloud is dense enough and the aerosols are the right uh, like size uh, binning to, for the LIDAR to be able to catch them and see them. Is that correct? Yeah, well, and I guess the, the LIDAR will see, the LIDAR will pick up um, aerosols. So it doesn't necessarily, I guess the, the major question was, LIDAR will pick up the background aerosols too, right? So we basically needed to say, is our plume visible enough against the background? Okay, a, so it's not the absolute visibility, it's the relative visibility, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and when you talk about the background aerosols, I mean, are you talking about, I kind of imagine that the bit in the plume behind the Scopex experiment, you're looking at a massive overabundance. I, I would imagine it of the order of 100 or more over background. But uh, the way you're talking now, it kind of implies that the, the over background is quite modest, right? So, which is. So we tested a bunch of different injection rates, um, basically, like doing 0.1 grams per second of a given material down to like 0.001 grams per second. So just understanding, yeah. like, could I do the bare minimum and still be able to see this thing? Yeah, um, yeah. Just okay. Just, just to know. But yes, you're right. It would be it would be significantly denser than than the background, assuming you know standard background. But so just, you found just, that relatively easy to detect the plume, right? Is that correct? Yeah, and it it seems like given um. Yeah, given so John Dykema did these calculations and basically found that you would easily expect to have a high enough signal to noise ratio given the limitations of the device he chose in particular um, to see the plume, um, which just, I'm not sure it's a surprising result, but I think it's just a good, you know. Yeah, you just want to check it, right? Because if you fly something, you can't see anything with it and it's not a lot of use, is it, right? Exactly. You spend a load of money on LIDAR and it can't see anything, right? right. Whoops. So did you get involved in, in in the LIDAR at all? Do you know how big it is, what it looks like? You know, or is that just someone else's problem? So this was mostly John. Not that it was, okay. I, I guess, I... So if I you went like, down the lab, would you be able to point to the LIDAR and just not know what it looks like? I've seen it. It kind of just looks like a box. I don't know. Everything, okay. I'm so how big is it? Like a shoe box? <laughs> like a washing machine? Like what? It's than I thought. Um, it, it's not, uh, I don't want to get it wrong. It's like the size of a small trash can. I don't know. It wasn't crazy. I think they also come in different varieties. But yeah, no, okay. maybe don't. Don't. Everyone should Google this themselves. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, because I mean, LIDAR is like, you, uh, you get pocket LIDAR, so measuring rooms and stuff like that, right? So uh, I'm used to the ones that architects carry around with them, and they're pretty small. So you're saying it's quite a good bit bigger than that, which you kind of expect because it's got to see some pretty small stuff, right? Um, so... Your, your job is to basically not to, to work on the LiDAR directly, but just sort of see if this aerosol size binning fits into, um, uh, you know, fit, 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 fits into the, the sensitivities of the, of the devices that are available for catching the plume. Exactly. Okay, fine. So, with the size distribution, you could, I mean, I think part of the argument too on understanding the size distribution is saying, well, geoengineering is very much dependent on creating particle sizes that are of a very particular um, size that you're really scattering sunlight effectively. Like, can yeah. we even, like, do we even expect to make those size, size particles in this, this type of experiment was. Yeah. Well, this, the whole Scopex concept is it your, or, or the, or the physics behind the Scopex 
project is that you're creating those directly, right? I mean, David Keith's been on about that for a while, about this sort of direct condensation technology, which is not the only way of doing it because you can rely on environmental condensation rather than direct condensation. So, but but the, the idea in this is to create monodispersed particles. So it's a bit like steam out of a kettle, right? So you have a, a hot plume of true steam, which is invisible. And then just above that, if you look at the kettle's nozzle, then you get a big cloud of what people call steam, but it's no longer actually steam. It's uh, uh, basically a cloud that you've made, right? Yeah. Uh, of water vapor, little aerosols of water vapor, and then they evaporate off. And, and the idea being with the sulfuric acid droplets, because they're really, really, really hygroscopic, they don't want to let go of the water. And so the um, they don't evaporate out like they would if they were pure water, right? Because otherwise it would be much more benign to use pure, pure water, but it would just end up with vapor, that very expensive vapor, right? Um, fine. Okay. So that do you think we've sort of covered your own research relatively thoroughly now is that if we got do you think we've got the drop on what you've done and and how it all fits together in the project yeah i would say the the other kind of key thing i mean we looked at both condensable h2so4 and we looked at calcite and i think this was the first time someone well i guess there have been papers but not maybe in this kind of type of detail of how you might expect calcite to behave and obviously like for simplicity, they were treated as just solid spheres. Um, we assume their sticking probability was 100%. So if one runs into another one, they are 100% likely to stick together, which, you know, I'm curious if that's correct. Um, but you you find with calcite, like if you have a kind of a low to medium injection rate, you can really keep everything as a monomer. Um, and because you've designed or engineered these particles to be the exact size, to be exactly efficient, um, yeah, like the, like the pigments in paint, right? So that, you know, my understanding yeah. is that paints yeah. are made by having, um, uh, like, they're all, so red paint and blue paint is basically made of the same stuff, but it's just the same stuff with different micro scale properties, right? Right. And I learned a lot about calcite because of this project. Did you know it's in a bunch of um, faux dairy products and in your toothpaste? Yeah. Uh, so well, I didn't, I mean, a calcium carbonate is added to quite a lot of different things, basically. It's used as a whitener and it's used as a filler and it's used in an abrasive. So it, it gets everywhere. around. Yeah. I didn't know that before. But yeah, so that's. Um... The, the, th the, the thing that, that baffles me about calcite is like, I don't quite understand how you're going to create a jet of powder suspended in air. Um, it doesn't seem very easy to do. It's quite clumpy stuff. Like, if you look at the Hulkstrom curve, back to my A-level geography, you get when stuff is big, it doesn't stick together like billiard balls. You put them in a pile and they don't stick together. But when stuff is little, then you put it in a pile and it doesn't come apart again. Right. So how do you get these calcite particles, which are very, very, very small, like far smaller than the materials in clays, for example, and clay sticks together pretty well. Um, so how do you get the, um, the calcite particles? How do you prize them apart? So the idea with the spray or how you might think about spraying it is you could design kind of, um, there's types of nozzles where, nozzles where you could have a carrier fluid, like I, I can't think of anything right now, but something that would obviously just evaporate away and out of the system. Um, and you, is it subsonic, is it supersonic? It's a type of nozzle where you can expect like the um, force at the nozzle tip to be so strong that you can break apart um, anything that's stuck together, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, and that would theoretically, 
theoretically, very theoretically here, bear with me, um, create uh, a plume that is not immediately just like a clump of particles. Um, okay. So we've made the assumption that that is possible. But hang on, let me just challenge that. So you, what you're, expect, what you're um, describing there is something that looks a bit like a raisin cake mix. So you've got the cake mix, the flour and the sugar and the water and all of that, and then you've got raisins in it. And the raisins are your particles and you've got the carrier fluid, right? Now, as that carrier fluid evaporates, you, unless you can spray that into tiny droplets, so you only get one raisin in each droplet, then as that carrier fluid evaporates, your raisins are going to get closer and closer together. And then you're just going to end up with a clump of raisins and no carrier fluid. So it's the idea that your nozzle is going to be capable of creating such a fine spray that you only ever get one raisin in each droplet. I think, I think that is part of the assumption, but I'm actually not sure. I'm not an expert. When I imagine this, I imagine- You are an I'm expert. That's why we got you on. <laughs> Not in the nozzle. I am an expert in the microphysics, and I said, I'm going to assume this is possible. Okay. <laughs> but no, I think, I think what people have discussed is if you, you spray something out of this nozzle, you create this kind of flat um, spray. I guess, I feel like this is, uh, like, I talk, basically, I ended up talking to, <laughs> reference my father here, my dad, he's a fuel injection guy for cars and understanding yeah. kind of how to, inject you know very particular Hence you end up as a chemical engineer right <laughs> yeah. um, did he spend did he spend your like childhood teaching you about like car carburetors and car cylinders <laughs> and stuff like that we learned a lot about uh like uh yes i guess particularly Fuel injection systems, uh, how, I remember going through physics and he was like, okay, well, imagine you're in, you know, the cylinder here. And this is how this works and that works. So he was a good guy to have around. <laughs> okay. um, but, but basically he was saying you could kind of create this kind of almost like two-dimensional, like flat where you have a single particle and you, you basically are spraying like a flat spray. Um, but whether, you know, I don't know, <laughs> this is me and my dad talking over a beer. So, <laughs> but I think, I think the people who would know or who would do this experiment in the future are probably Armand or his team or some collaboration. Okay. Well, I'd really like to know about that. So maybe you should drag him on and get some nozzle <laughs> physics guys. Um, nozzle physics, not novel physics. Um, we don't want to hear that voodoo <laughs> on our show, um, but we'll get some nozzle physics guys to come and talk to us about that. Um, at some future juncture but anyway right so um we've covered i think the broad scope of your work but i just want to ask you sort of more general stuff about scopex and career and stuff like that so um you uh you, i guess you're coming to the end of your phd or fairly near the end of it so is, this is the first paper is that right yes and so, we so we, we, we technically we, we focus on um on this we've got we've had loads of people who've come on for like the big celebration of losing their scientific virginity and we've had loads of people probably about a third of the people that have come on our show have talked about their very first paper which we're kind of proud of um uh give people an opportunity to break the news of their scientific career so happy days another one of them and um you are gonna you're gonna finish your phd win ah what a horrible question um <laughs> hopefully at the end of next year i think that's my personal goal, but also who knows with all this okay. virus stuff. And, but that, that's okay. my goal. Um, and then after that, are you going to carry on working on it? 
I think so. I would like to do a postdoc. I am, you know, I'm pretty interested at this point in, you know, obviously solar geoengineering, but then learning more about aerosol microphysics and kind of the the places that we maybe have gaps in our knowledge has been really interesting. So yeah, encoding up all those parameterizations, I learned the faults in a lot of our parameterizations. Um, so where do where are the gaps? What do you think we need to know that we don't know? Well, I think I mean, for example, there was recently a new paper that kind of extended the temperature and pressure um, limits to our parameterizations. But essentially, once you get into these really dense regimes, um, we just assume burialist nucleation, which makes sense. But then there's kind of this in-between oh, zone. Do you assume what? You assume burialist burialist nu nucleation. So you basically yeah, say- I heard the words. I just don't understand what they mean. You basically say- okay, my, I'm looking, say I'm just looking at a box and I filled that box with so many aerosol or so many at this point, say H2SO4 molecules, that I'm just going to assume that all of them are going to condense or nucleate into single um, kind of nucleation seed particles. Um, yeah, yeah. And sure, that's fine. But you really, you have, in if, if you're existing in, in the real world, you have two competing processes. You have nucleation and growth. And so if I were to break my computational time step really, really, really small, basically I would be injecting instead of, you know, say I'm injecting 0.1 grams of this material per second into my box. If I yeah. take a tiny, tiny, tiny chunk of that, then, oh, I don't really see that high density in that time step. And instead of having barrierless nucleation, I'm actually going to have a more balanced process where I nucleate and then, um, Oh, but also I can I can condense onto the surface of those particles. Yeah. Um, so as you add more material, some of it gets stuck to the existing particles that you create, and some of it has a potential to create new stuff. Yeah. Right. And I think if it it becomes con computationally intractable to to break down your steps small enough, this is just a specific case for our continuous injection. Um, yeah. So I think there's still questions, and you know, how can you improve? The parameterizations or like how can you provide maybe like an easier kind of almost like table lookup for like oh well i have this much so i expect my um nucleation rate to be this but i also expect my growth rate to be this um there's just i don't know I, that was that was me perhaps well that that's a you know. way of doing it and like one of the ways you can do it is by having a continuous injection the other is to have the alternative which is like a pulse mode thruster right so you inject and stop inject and stop inject and stop right so is there any advantage to doing it in in that way um or all your models continuous the latter is comp like the latter i say is computationally easier to understand if that makes sense or at least like it's more represented i think by the yeah. the kind of the iterations that you you use when you're modeling this way that the time chunks um you're yeah. using um, okay. yeah, and then I think the, the second question I have is, this is all well and good for the Scopex experiment where I just have propellers, but as soon as you are thinking about anything coming out of a plane, then you have way cooler processes happening. You have ion-induced nucleation, which is basically saying you have these kind of ions floating around, which are actually going to drive your nucleation, um, and you get kind of much larger particle sizes as a result of this process, or at least that's what's been theorized. But I think there's kind of a, a there's quite a few publications, but I think there's kind of a lack of consensus. And so that would be really interesting to have a model study and a, 
experimental study. I don't know. There's a lot of questions, a lot of cool questions. Well, yeah, I mean, my big concern about the like distribution is, I, and I've only just started to realise how little this has been examined. There's no one's really looked at how just the energetics of getting this stuff out of the back of the plane. They kind of assume that you just take it and toss it out the back like a you know, sack of grain or a tank or something like that. But it doesn't work like that at all because you've got to heat it because it goes, you've got a fluid which goes into the ambient air and then it expands enormously, um, you know, factors of a thousand or more because you're turning a liquid into a gas and it's a gas of very, very low pressure. Uh, it's actually probably near 10,000, to be fair. Um, and you see so this huge, huge expansion cooling, uh, which causes havoc with your expansion uh, uh, and, and distribution. So and I, I kind of assumed that when people are talking about distributing this stuff out of aircraft, they actually thought all that through. But apparently that hasn't been done, which is I found that pretty shocking because that's like first year undergraduate mechanical engineering stuff. But um, which I should be able to do, but can't because I even when I was at engineering college, I could barely do the maths. Um, but I've got to try and um, uh, look into that at some point because that does rather give me the heebie-jeebies that no one's looked into that. Um, but I wanted to look um, at, to ask you more about the sort of general Scopex situation. Obviously, you've got a you're a member of the project team and you kind of see it even if you only get heavily involved in a facet of it. Um, you know, you're going to be sent to the gulags along with everybody else for this stuff because, um, you know, it's pretty controversial. So what do you think of Scopex fitting into a, a broader political context? I mean, is Scopex really genuinely any use or is it just a bit of academic indulgence with a balloon? Is it really going to get us anywhere near to building the kind of engineering that we need or should we just get on with building bigger scale hardware and distribution technology and then work out the the fine-tuning physics and stuff afterwards i mean is it is, is there a point to it or is it just academic indulgence I'm not quite sure well i think i think what scopex serves and i guess i I don't know, I kind of exist in aerosol microphysics land but i think it, for me it, it really that sounds like a really bad theme park <laughs> Since, when your children have been naughty send them to aerosol microphysics land but i think it, it, it is a, it, it's basically i i view scopex as like just like a fundamental climate science question in understanding how you know sulfates are behaving in the stratosphere and i think it's relevant to understanding our own you know parameterizations testing our parameterizations in the field at the pressures and temperatures that we're interested in in the stratosphere um so for me i'm often like existing being like la 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 this is like a very cool normal basic natural science experiment and then i kind of take a step back and you know you go on twitter occasionally and you're like oh no this is quite controversial uh so i i think my brain kind of it heads to gulags yeah a bit. um so i i i yeah i view it as kind of i think an important first step i don't view it at all as a as any sort of development of deployment technology because it's really not you know um, um yeah i get it but like i mean isn't that what we need i mean surely there's a there's a at least a legitimate argument to say that we should stop mucking around with all this environmental physics stuff and just get on with making some stuff that actually works um because you know we, we're in a position now where we need to be starting accelerating hardware development um and you know we, we can answer these um environmental and microphysics questions much better when we've got full-scale deployment hardware rather than 
faffing around with balloons that are really nothing like the actual craft that we'll be using to ultimately distribute this material if and when we get on to doing it, right? I guess that's, you know, it's a pretty personal opinion of, I, I would say, I think that this is the right, the right path. So doing this kind of aerosol physics now um, makes a lot of sense to provide, you know, the type of research and the type of modeling kind of knowledge that, you know, in future could be really important for people making a decision to start developing deployment stuff. But I think this is dependent on, you know, how you view deployment. And like, if you think, like, I think this is kind of the right place to be and doing this type of research right now is, is what makes sense. Um, but I do think I'm a little more conservative as far as, you know, the threshold of opinions on, you know, how things should be going. Okay, so you sort of take a slow and steady approach. You'd like to see the science progress. Um, you know, in advance of the engineering. And, and what about political risk? I mean, like Scopex is a pretty politicalized subject. It's a, a stick to beat um, uh, the geoengineering community with. And, you know, David Keith is, you know, quite a prominent figure. He's quite a, a notable personality. Um, and, you know, he's to some extent painted um, as a bogeyman. Um, you know, do you think that the way that Scopex is being designed and and, uh, and promoted creates a situation where, you know, you guys are becoming a lightning rod. You're becoming not necessarily individually because, you you know, you, you like the people within the scope of teams are, are not that well known. You're not a household name, but David Keith to some extent is, you know, are you guys a lightning rod for, you know, geo hatred? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Right. Like I think, I think if people are really, anti-geoengineering and you you google it you know david keith and harvard university's program are the first thing to come up but i think anyone i've talked to and i've explained my research to has been like oh you're kind of that's pretty boring um like, <laughs> well that's <laughs> the joy of being a chemical engineer isn't it you're not gonna it's not for it's not designed as a subject for wowing people at parties <laughs> So I think, I think most people, once I'm like, okay, this is actually, you know, what I do, they're like, oh, okay. Like that's, you know, that feels more like, you know, an important science question. This feels a little less just scary and political. Um, but yeah, you're right. It is, it is hyper-politicized. And I have certainly been, you know, up at night sometimes being like, have I just totally gotten a PhD and I'm going to be this outlier human. PhD in evil. Um, so... Well, yeah, I understand that. I mean, like, to, I, I, just on a personal level, I mean, to what extent do you think that, you know, as this project goes forward and it will become more controversial over time as it goes to launch and becomes more widely known, gets more media coverage, you know, to what extent do you think that your personal association might, you know, contain, you know, it, it might affect your career or affect people, how, how people treat you generally? I mean, like, some people are steeled to that kind of stuff. Like, uh, I, I'm not too bothered about people... Um, you know, telling me how awful they think I am because I've had a lot of practice in people telling me that since I was in about primary school. So I've learned not to care very much. But other people are a bit more, you know, delicate flowers and they don't like being told that they're evil. Um, so do you think that this is, you know, has the potential for negative fallout for your career? And do you think that you might end up in a situation where, you know, people, you view you as sort of like, not necessarily you specifically more than anybody else, but people associated with Scopex might be seen as sort of 
you know public hate figures in one way or another do you think that's do you think that's likely or possible or what I mean I think everything's possible I think as far as my career I feel like I guess I you know I could have left this group, right? And I, I stayed for reasons, personal reasons and ethical reasons where I think, you know, this is really the, the right thing to be studying and that, you know, I can explain my views to someone. And I hope that in future, like I really am only interested in working with people who are willing to have, you know, an intelligent and nuanced conversation about my research. And I hope they look at my aerosol microphysical model and they say, wow, that's great science, not, you know, just kind of dismissing me. Um, but I'm sure that will happen, but I guess, I would like to say I could just, you know, shake it off and be like, I don't want to work with you either. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm not the best. But, but at- the point I'm making is like, it's, it's not a comment on the quality of your science, but there's a school of thought that says, um, you know, you can't divorce the scientific process from the social consequences of it. And, uh, and, and uh, that, that's very difficult because that kind of philosophy of science uh, and, and consequentialism isn't particularly taught in engineering college right you know i've never had any training in ethics as part of engineering now you can pick examples from history that are probably more prominent from scopex but you know did people who worked on the nuclear bomb cause the cold war in a way that perhaps the politicians didn't um because you know the political results of that technology were an inevitable downstream consequence of the fundamental science now i'm not expecting to answer a question so broad on a show which is not about that at all but what i'm saying is do you do you think that the that there is um a legitimacy in any complaints that people on the scopex team are you know by what you could call uh a sort of blind engineering where they're sort of doing engineering and physics for engineering and physics sake but not thinking appropriately or deeply enough about the the social consequences of it do you think there is a degree of culpability if you know don't get me wrong i mean this isn't my own view here i don't i don't view scopex as being evil at all in fact i think it's a very timid experiment and i I wish you'd just get on with it and 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 do a lot more bolder experiments and do them a lot more quickly but i'm certainly you know that's just a viewpoint and there are a lot of people who take them a different view so the, the, the question i'm trying to get at here is you know do you think that the 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 moral questions around scopex will inevitably be you know a a stain or a a um will will come down to the people who are hard scientists on the team will people in future say you know you shouldn't have worked on it you should have known you should have thought about it more carefully would that be a fair a fair comment or or do you just say hey man this is just physics it's someone else's problem to you know, deal with the social applications and, and moral consequences of it. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I get your question. So I think, um, I mean, I think the way, like, I would say like, A, I have felt the weight of that moral question and I've thought about it and thought, okay, yes, like I'm like, do I want to be associated with this because of the way people might view the kind of social fallout and like whatever probable future happens and how this impacts the future. And I would say because Scopex is being done in a way with so much intentional oversight and intentional governance, like that makes me feel comfortable being involved in that. I think it is being thought out in a really smart way. And I think in future, if something you know goes terribly wrong and the world but can i just unpack that because I, I just like to probe probe what you said there because there's two there's two ways that you could uh interpret that so the first one is to say 
I think these people are doing a very good job of interpreting the moral, moral consequences. They're probably doing a far better job than I could. Um, and therefore, I don't have to worry about it. The other way is saying, well, you know, I've got appropriate organisational cover. So if people um, criticise the morality of my actions, I can just refer them upstairs. Which of those two approaches are you taking, which I, I think are quite different approaches? Yeah, no, I would, uh, the former, right? Like, I do feel like, certainly hold me responsible. Like, I'm a scientist working on this. I have chosen to work in this field for a reason. And like, I think I, again, respect and, you know, really appreciate how much thinking has gone into um, the project as a team. So like, I think it would be one thing for me to say like, well, I've considered this morally and ethically myself, I'm comfortable, but the fact that the entire kind of experiment is encapsulated in this bubble of thinking ethically and morally, um, like I think they're doing a good job and that makes it so that my my morals and ethics are aligned with the, the entire project team. Um, but yeah, I'm not saying I'm gonna in the future be like scapegoating, like, oh, well, the oversight committee was there, so don't don't look at me um like okay. no like oh yeah, I, I get be- i get your point you know you're, you're basically saying you you, you 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 trust the process but you're you're not just trying to you know blindly uh, uh discard responsibility um i just wanted to sort of ask you about the kind of public controversy now i mean scopex is not being without its critics but it's relatively um, you get, I mean, it's, it, it, it gets some criticism within the geoengineering community and it gets some sort of slightly hubristic, dystopian um, press coverage. Uh, much of it, you know, fairly sort of tomorrow's chip wrapper type stuff. It's not necessarily criticism that bears much scrutiny or will stick in time. But if you look at other areas of scientific research, and the one that springs to mind particularly is um, uh, a lot of uh, animal experimentation. I mean, the, the scientists working on that have been the victims certainly in the UK of full-scale domestic terrorism and there you know, have been some quite gruesome uh, incidents of, uh, of, of uh, not necessarily violent attacks but really severe um, long-term intimidation of scientists working on this um, project and, and, and one of my, my concerns of people in the field is that you know that the, perhaps the, the degree of uh, intuitive understanding of uh, campaign group tactics um, is not necessarily fully appreciated by all of the people working in the field. So to what extent are you personally expecting a backlash, not necessarily against yourself, but maybe against other team members? Uh, you know, how, how bad are, are you expecting it to get? Or do you think that, that you know, the, 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 um, the experiments will calm down this public opposition? What, what's your expectation for, you know, the impact beyond the science uh, in terms of your, you know, your, you and the team, your personal life and your, uh, and, and the degree of media or public scrutiny that you might be subjected to uh, as a result of these experiments. Yeah, I mean, I guess to preface, like I'm not one of the mechanical engineers, so I'm you know not in the field. I'm not working directly with this this flight and this paper is really my main connection to anything with the name Scopex. Um, and so for me, I mean. I think I did another interview where like I got some nasty comments in the comment thread or I get weird tweets. Um, So for me, it feels more of like an internet based retaliation and then a personal level. But I feel like, I mean, the team, I think the team is generally ready for understanding, you know, 
people protesting. I think that happened at some of the conferences we've had as a community as well, where you have protesters, whether that's, you know, specifically against geoengineering, if it's a mix of geoengineering and chemtrail conspiracy theorists, you know, you kind of get this interesting yeah. mix of, of pushback. Um, but I think, I think the, the main, you know, very legitimate thing that could happen is people are just you know, like, nope, we really are going to push back on this. Um, when, you know, the, I think the oversight committee is, is supposed to do some public engagement. Um, and it's possible that the public in, you know, wherever they want to fly is like, nope, like we really, you know, we've heard you out. We really don't want this. Like, I don't know how that plays out. I don't know how that works, yeah. but I think. I mean, the Spice Project in the UK got a load of protests. I mean, all they did is spray, well, they were trying to spray a bathtub of water on the end of a hose in the sky. Um, and, you know, there was a huge public hoo-ha about it. And, you know, you can you can look into the history of this and say, well, it was dropped for, you know, entirely legitimate patent and legal concerns. Or you could say, well, those concerns would never have come to the forefront of considerations if it wasn't for the fact that there was this huge level of public scrutiny and it was just a convenient way of canning the project. So, you know, I'm, I'm very much aware of the, the, the scrutiny that happens. And, you know, the UK is not a, uh, uh, by comparison with American society, um, it's much less polarised um and uh although brexit's given that a bit of a run for its money um and it's certainly certainly much less violent so we don't tend to have the you know the kind of extremity of um of action in the uk that that can happen um in the us but i'm i'm, I'm certainly aware of the controversy of scope actually i think you're perfectly right to say that you're you know you're not the obvious lightning rod here you're not the public face of scopex and the work that you're doing is you know as you say not you're not a flight engineer you're not a you know principal designer you're not a project lead so you're not an obvious person for people to paint as a bogeyman and also because of your you know your 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 nature you don't come across as being a you're not exactly dr strange love are you in your personal demeanor and manner it's not it's not really you so yeah i don't think you're the person that people are going to want to pick on but the question i i the basis of my questions is you know should people expect you know a degree of long-term personal harassment from working in this field i mean my my, my concern certainly is that it's, it's not that this is inevitable but i think that people working in the field need to be at least mindful of a risk in the same way that you know when you drive you don't expect to crash but you still wear a seatbelt right you don't you don't wear a seatbelt because you think you're going to go through the windscreen you just think it's a prudent precaution to take in case one day you try to right that's my personal take no that's that's a solid point i think my first year here if you were talking to me five years ago um it was it was me realizing that there was a lot of risk related to this field and kind of hearing some of the experiences that you know david has had um with pretty you know violent or aggressive interactions on twitter or you know perhaps even, you know, phone calls, stuff like that. And I, I, I think my first year, I remember being scared. I remember thinking like, mm, should I like, do I feel strongly enough about doing this research to stay in this field or should I just exit now? Like, and you know, I mean, I can say now, you know, I was seriously considering le like leaving Harvard to, to pursue a different program. Cause I was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea what I was getting into. And then- well, So you, you know, you're now considering leaving Harvard because of the controversy of the field or you were considering it? Oh no, this was my first year. I guess I okay. came to Harvard not, I mean, I, I was like, wow, this is a cool and interesting topic. I have yeah. no idea what I'm doing. And I showed up and I was like, oh wow, this is like very controversial. And like, this is um, very, 
heated. And I, you know, I had some experiences with, you know, fellow classmates where people were like, why are you studying this? Like you're ruining your career. Like, what are you doing? Um, and that layered with some of what I'm hearing David was experiencing. I was like, wow, this is just, you know, this is a, this is risky. This feels risky. Um, but you know, I think if you're in the field, that's something that you, you run into and you, you do seriously grapple with it. And then you kind of decide like, okay, like this is, I feel strongly enough to do it, or you know, I maybe yeah. don't. I mean, I, I, I'm in a weird position myself because although I've been in engineering for a very long time, you know, published it, you know, done a lot of science communication, and quite well known in the field, I've never relied on it for any part of my income, right? And so I've got a degree of insulation from uh, these things that that the people I interview don't have, and you know, their their ability to get that next job uh, is a very, you know, academia is not a an easy place to get to stability in you know when, once you get to stability we should get your professorship get tenure it's quite a stable and relatively well-paid job um but certainly when people are at phd postdoc stage etc cetera, etc cetera, there's a, a long and greasy pole to climb and if your career is tainted by association with a field which is seen as being a political hot potato then i guess it's a very real concern for people rightly or wrongly you know it, it's not even necessarily that it, it does directly affect their career, but the fact that it potentially could affect their career is is perhaps something which is a you know a significant worry for people, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I worry about it. I think um, for me, what I'm really interested in is you know solar geoengineering in, in the modeling world is a really cool way to probe model mechanics and the dynamics of a model and and answer really it's it's I, I see solar geo is really related to these fundamental climate questions um and so i think you know i have very intentionally generated a way to view this that could be marketable in the future right like in in you know where someone who is really you know not into solar geo can understand why i studied it and see the extensions into you know just general climate science and I'm not, you know, I'm not sure my peers have had to, to do that. You know, I think that is a very specific thing in, in being in this position. Yeah, I think, you, you know, the, one of the advantages is of, of studying in this field, as you rightly point out, is that if you were doing something like, you know, aileron design or something like that, which is, you know, you could you do an equivalent, um, you, could t you could apply your skills equivalently to something which is a lot more... Um, uh, you know, generic, and and you might be pushing the boundaries of physics, but you're not necessarily, um, you know, in, in, incurring the same uh, social and political questions and um, in a, and a career politics that goes with it. I think one of the advantages of working in this field is it makes you a bit more politically savvy, right? Because you come across a range of challenges that maybe other people wouldn't know uh, how to handle, and. That in itself could be a marketable skill. So perhaps the, you know, the, perhaps the association with a con controversial field experience in that controversial field is perhaps more marketable and more of a career benefit than a career harm. I think uh, time will tell how geoengineering is perceived, in a, in a, you know, how the field develops, whether it's seen as this kind of uh, uh, the start of a, a, a brand new dawn or, or, or a terrible piece of uh, science that no one would, would ever have thought of. And I think that rightly or wrongly, that social perception is going to affect the careers of um, people who've worked in it for a long time, but it's certainly interesting to discuss those issues. Is there anything else that you feel that you'd like to add, um, you know, either about your work or about the, you know, the development of the field, you know, the, the interesting research questions that you think remain to be answered and the 
um, and uh, you know the direction the field's going in overall, whether the focus on stratospheric aerosol geoengineering, which is what you work on, is is um, rightly on the pedestal that it's currently on. Um, anything that you think we've missed, be good to hear from you. Um, I think, I mean, we've covered a lot. I think I might close with saying, you know, I think working in such a political or controversial field, you know, I think that also applies to anyone studying climate change in a way, especially that's the feeling in the United States as it is so um, politicized. Um, but I think, you know, having to interrogate your own kind of views on climate change, climate science, um, geoengineering, you know, has been really useful and has provided a lot of personal growth. So I see a lot of um, younger students or, you know, people beginning their, their PhD or starting a postdoc really interested in looking at this. And I think that, that there's like kind of an interesting kind of change in maybe how this is being viewed by kind of the next coming up group of academics. So I'm, I'm just interested to see how this, this moves forward in the future, but otherwise, I don't know. Thanks for interviewing me. I really had a great time chatting. Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that people, people, a good test of whether we're doing a good job is whether people send us the interview tapes afterwards. I've never had someone where I've done an interview and they've gone, right, you're not having that MP3. And I was like, what did I do to upset you? But that has, as yet, never happened. So at least the people we interview like us, even if um, uh, nobody else does, but we don't know that. We, we They still keep listening, not huge numbers, but they do keep listening. So we're obviously pleasing some of the people. Um, so thank you very much for coming on the show. Just uh, uh, incumbent upon me as reviewer two to do my duty and reject your work and wish you all the well, uh, all the best in your future career. Thank you very much. Thank you.